Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in three separate locations, meeting over the internet to talk about movies, which we do every two weeks, this group. We have not spoken since before Halloween. It was the last time we recorded. So this is uh, another transitional episode <laughs> where we're like easing out of the spooky season. I made everyone watch something that was spooky adjacent for this conversation. Uh how was everybody's Halloween? Did y'all watch some horror movies? Did y'all hand out some candy, dress up in costumes, that kind of thing? So my Halloween was pretty good, pretty lazy. We handed out some candy. I had gotten these, um, you know, like Easter eggs, how they open up. But I I got those, but they're jack-o'-lanterns, like little pumpkins to put Ooh, candy in that. for kids. So we did that. And um, Thomas has this like bone arm that he made and we like draped him in this like gauzy fabric so he could like (laughs) extend his like extra long bony arm to give children candy um and i just kind of attached a skull to a bobby pin and fastened that to my head and that was my costume for handing out candy and then i came inside and watched the black cat with um both Lugosi and Boris Karloff. So that was my uh, Halloween movie. It was great. Loved it. It's a classic. It's a masterpiece. It's so good. I watched um all of their collaborations when they both worked for Universal. I think like the first year we were blogging. Oh, um nice. and that one was easily my favorite. Just the like German expressionist sets that like don't seem to have a ceiling. Like they just yeah. go on and on forever. And then the violence, like especially that silhouette at the end with the like, I think someone gets like de-skinned or something Mm -hmm. on screen. Uh, It's like shockingly violent for a 30s horror film. Pre-code, obviously. I was going to say, there's a lot of like really like scandalous for the 30s, like newlywed jokes that I was surprised by. I was like, oh my God, (laughs) these are, these are jokes you'd see in a movie now. So yeah, definitely pre-code. And then also, just, I felt like the plot, you know, supposedly inspired by Edgar Allan Poe, but... Uh, sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they just really did their own thing with it. Um, It was fun. I will say, too, just with all those collaborations between them, those, like, reluctant, we have to work together, even uh-huh. though we're basically professional rivals. Yeah. Usually, Karloff gets, like, the lead role, and Lugosi's just kind of a side character in most of those movies. And this one, I felt like they were kind of going toe-to-toe more. Yeah. They were like on equal footing. It's kind of it's kind of something really special in that subset of movies. Yeah. So I think my first one after that was The Lure. Very very good. Loved it. Loved the take on mermaids. Loved the grossness of it. This is the Polish disco mermaid horror musical. Yes, the Polish disco horror mermaid musical. <laughs> Maybe I should throw the word cannibal in there as well. I mean, are they cannibals if they're mermaids? That yeah, that's a good question. Maybe I, maybe I should have left that one out. Yeah, uh, I was gonna <laughs> that say. Was a good choice. I think that's part of the the mermaid myth is that they do eat flesh. I uh, I love that movie. That was one of my favorites from the last decade when we put together our like best of the decade list. It was high up on mine. Yeah, I was watching this movie Undina from this year. Um, that was like this like kind of low key Eastern European fairy tale, modern day fairy tale thing, and. 
it's also doing that same Hans Christian Andersen retelling as mm-hmm. the lore, but it's just way more like subdued and like heartfelt drama. Oh, and like watching yeah. it the whole time, I was like, wouldn't this be better if they were like bursting out in a song and like just buckets of gore being fl- right? in front of the camera right? and stuff? <laughs> yeah. I think it's so. It's hard to go back after you've seen this. Yeah. I don't know if you know this. This is like a total aside about the story of Little Mermaid, but it was actually like Hans Christian Andersen writing this heartbroken because of his love for another man. So I love The Little Mermaid as a story because of that, just inherently. But especially this retelling was just so beautiful. Um, Because, yeah, like you said, it's just buckets of gore everywhere. There's, like, disco numbers constantly. It's just out of control. I loved it. And I feel like it ends on such a happier note, even though it's still sad than uh, The Little Mermaid did. So I'm very into that. Um, I also watched a movie that um, Boomer had been talking about a while back, Stage Fright Aquarius. Ooh. Yeah. I'm very excited. I liked it. I liked it a lot. That owl mask is so good. I think that's my favorite part of the movie. And in a movie that I enjoyed, but the owl mask is so, so good. I liked the whole like stage production aspect of it and just that opening number is incredible where it's just like this musical of a murder <laughs> happening which I guess between the two of these movies I'm just saying that more musicals should be about murder and cannibalism. Hey, we just did a whole horror musical episode I a know. couple episodes back. I actually listened to it, so very good job, y'all. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I actually listened to it. Real quick, before we move on, what, now that you have watched it, what do you think the plot of the play in Stage Fright is? Oh my god! (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to interrupt your train of thought when you're trying to move on, but I I have my own questions. I was just going to go on from there, and you know what? That's a really good point, is what is the plot of that musical, other than there's a murderer... And he turns into an owl. So the film opens with that musical sequence yeah. where um, the uh, Alicia's character is pulled into a dark like alcove. Yeah. And then the owl-headed killer bursts out. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the opening of the play? Yeah. Or is it just the opening of the... Okay. I okay. think that's the opening of the play. Or, you know, it could be in the middle, but they don't really say it. It seemed like it was the opening number, but I don't know. What do you think is happening when that little girl is dressed as Raggedy Ann? Or when the actress is dressed as Raggedy Ann and dancing on the bed? Because, okay, to me, is I it feel a like dream chronologically... Sequence? I don't know. Chronologically, it feels like the scene where Corinne is, like, dancing around her bedroom and, like, kind of fantasizing about the night owl. It yeah. feels like that would come sooner in the play? Yeah. Because, okay, the the woman who's pulled into the alcove and is murdered is Alicia. But uh, they keep saying that Alicia is the lead role. Yes. Which is what implies to me that that's not the first scene. Yeah, Because normally like your lead end. doesn't fly. Yes. Unless, you know, so, you're starting before and then you're doing flashbacks, which doesn't happen very often in the theater, but this is an interesting, wild, wild musical about a murder. 
I just was curious if maybe you had a better understanding of what was happening. I wish I knew the plot of that play because somebody needs to make it happen. They also keep calling them the soundstage killings, but it's not a soundstage. It's not a soundstage. It's just a stage. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Those are my thoughts that I still have months months later i looking at um, good thoughts good questions the website it looks like that review that i wrote went up in march and it's now november yeah <laughs> so i still have a lot of questions but <laughs> i was hoping or maybe thinking that maybe since you saw it more recently you, you'd be able to help me but it looks no. like i'm just going to die with questions but now we're just lost like the night owl yeah <laughs> i'm sorry what else have you been watching uh yeah so I watched this um, really avant-garde sort of true crime movie. It's more of like an avant-garde sort of like art installation feeling movie than something you could actually sit down and watch. So you'll have to excuse me because my whole focus was not on the movie all the time. Basically, the concept was two murders, the murders of Ed Gein, and then the murder of this young girl in California by her friend. And it kind of compares and contrasts them in the ways that the surroundings and everything around it is just like very American. So there's a lot of like quiet shots of just like landscape. It's called landscape suicide. Sorry. I don't know if I said the title. So yes, there's a lot of shots of landscape and a lot of like quiet sort of moments like that but then there's also reenactments of the killers being interrogated and like telling their crimes but it's just like first person point of view just them saying in detail all of the crimes that they did and every detail about them so it's kind of a it's kind of a trickier watch I don't know that I've ever seen you know something like that before How'd you discover it? It's on Criterion on the true crime section that they have up Ah. right now. (laughs) I was like, okay, well, this is a tight 90. It feels a lot longer. I wouldn't say it's enjoyable as a film so much as like, it's a very interesting art piece. And then just earlier today, I did a rewatch of Into the Inferno because my niece did not know who Werner Herzog was. And I was like, well, I feel like this is the one of the more accessible films and it's right here. So we watched Into the Inferno. Is this his volcano documentary? Yes, this is the volcano documentary. And uh, my niece got to find out how big of a volcano nerd I am. I love volcanoes. I cannot explain um, all into them. So this movie I was very excited about. Because love Herzog, love volcanoes, love Clive Oppenheimer, the volcano nerd he's with. It's great. And it's also very, like, nice, lazy middle-of-the-day programming. Because he's got, you know, his calming, like, German narration talking about apocalyptic scenes of fire and brimstone. And also just all these, like, ambient volcano noises. I don't know. It's just, it's just really great. I've been thinking about a lot about his narration style recently because yes. um, on Great British Bake Off right now, that contestant Jurgen is like the sweet, like anti-Herzog. He's <laughs> got the same exact accent, but he's like talking about his delicious bakes oh, instead of like, that's so good. Uh, you know, the world falling apart yeah. and like 
the internet taking over whatever else oh my God. is rambling yeah, about. Yeah, whatever else he's rambling about. Baby Yoda. Professional wrestling sometimes yeah. for some reason. Yeah, so that's what I've been watching. Boomer, how was your Halloween and what have you been watching? My Halloween was pretty good. Um, I was going to reuse my EMH Doctor uh, from Voyager costume from 2019. Oh, good. And by the time that I finished putting all these like little you know alcohol tequila and lime juice and even like a little vial of salt like i put together a med kit of little vials of liquors to like go and like drink at a party and everything Uh i tried to um put the pants on and they no longer fit so instead this year (laughs) i went using items from my own closet which i think is possibly a little bit embarrassing i went as a hip youth pastor yes um, <laughs> oh wait i saw a picture of this what did you think <laughs> it was spot on yeah thank you picture it vest like a formal oh, yeah, vest but yeah. over like a long sleeve henley uh-huh vented torn black jeans okay yes backwards cap oh my god fake ear cuffs oh, sneakers no. and a little bible <laughs> and I, I, everywhere I went, I just had to be like, hey, I'm here to talk to you guys about a rad dude named Jesus Christ. <laughs> JC for short. Tell me who's in the house. <laughs> JC. That is a quote from Carman, who featured a lot in the movie that we are going to be talking about. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so that was sort of like what I did on October 30th, because Halloween proper, I didn't really do much. I, I put out a bowl of full-size candy bars, because- I believe Whoa. the children Whoa. are our future, and not a lot come to my door anyway. And I feel like if you're a kid, the past year and a half of COVID has been real shit. You deserve a full-size Three Musketeers. Yeah. So I just put them out, true. and I'm like, you know, honor system. I don't know if any kids came, because I wasn't home on the 30th, and on the 31st, I was also, like, next door. I It didn't seem like a lot was taken, if any at all, but wow. I do live in, like, an apartment building, so... The one year that I was like home since I moved here, you know, we had one family of like three kids come by and that was it. So, you know, I don't expect a lot, but, you know, if you came to my door, (laughs) the risk was worth the reward. (laughs) And interestingly, the thing that I watched on the night of the 30th was not, was like the least spooky thing on my list um, of what I've watched, which was End of Evangelion. I like that movie a lot. Really? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I know it's controversial. I don't think I've ever seen it actually. So, but it's okay. You guys can you guys can say everything because I don't think there's anything in that show that can be spoiled or ruined or whatever because it's it's just one of those very much up to the viewer <laughs> to interpretate, interpretate, interpret or not. I was so bored. At multiple points during this. And I feel like it was very sententious. I feel like there was a lot that was being communicated. Because here's the thing about the show. I actually liked how decompressed it was. You know, when there would be like a 60 second elevator ride. Or, you know, Shinji taking 72 seconds of no motion. Like 72 seconds of the same shot before killing Kaoru, right? I thought that that worked great on the show. In the end of Evangelion, I and I, 
to reiterate for those who have not um listen to our previous episodes where we talked about this i know how it's pronounced it's a it's a troll um but in the the movie i was like i was so bored during the sequence of um the human instrumentality project where it sort of cuts into the real world i understood what was being communicated within like the three initial shots and i was like wow this is being communicated so like evocatively and profoundly and sort of um, concisely. And that went on for another 10 minutes. And I was like, I am so tired of this. <laughs> I was so ready for it to be over. I don't have a lot that I really want to say about it because most of what my thoughts were, I already shared with Matt at the end of it, where I was like, okay, I know, <laughs> I know what the story is. But what was this all about? <laughs> like, what what was this project about? What was its thesis? Not what was its plot, but what was its point? And it is sort of about how people are inevitably going to hurt each other because of the fact that we are bound within our own AT fields. But I was also just like, oh, oh boy. I liked the show most when it wasn't doing that, when it was kind of just a, an introspective, you know, it's, it's a mech series that's about, you know, people having a hard time, but when it became about, you know, it got very, it was just word salad. It was very, it was very, uh, it was like the hybrids babbling nonsense in the later seasons of Battlestar Galactica, which made all of the fans <laughs> online really try and like diagnose what was being said. It also really reminded me of the book of John. Cause you know, John starts with like, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. Like it's all sort of like metaphysical except that, you know, all of the like people are apart. People are together. The dream circumspects reality, but in reality we are the dreamer. And in the dreamer, we are the dream. And the dream was the word. And the word was with God. I was so exhausted by it. It infuriated me, Brandon. I'm going to be honest. I was so ready for it to end. I think it's supposed to infuriate you a little bit because I feel like it's sort of a troll on the audience of the television show because like, the ending of the series is like this movie. And it's perfect in my eyes. <laughs> like, uh, I, I mean, it's been about a year since I've seen this for the first time. And I've only seen it once. But I remember the ending reaching this like singularity where like right. all the different personae from the show sort of like blend and mix. And then basically everyone is just one being by the end. Yeah. Uh, and it's like psychedelic mind melter in my eyes. And then like people complained so much and like sent uh, the creator, like all these death threats about like how he like ruined a perfect show and like all these things. So he came back with this movie undid the ending of the show and like sort of pretended early on in the movie that he was going to give them a more proper send off, like a more traditional narrative and then made it even more confusing and scrambled. And if I remember correctly, like included images of the death threats that he got in the animation with all this other like multimedia, just like mind melt shit. And yeah, it is a little like messy and it's like messaging and uh, 
you know, the clarity of what it's saying. But I, I really like that he like doubled down and like pushed back on his audience that demanded um, something from him that he didn't want to give. He's like, no, I'll just give you the same ending a second time um, and make it even weirder and more difficult to parse out. So I guess I liked it as like a, you know, a filmmaker not caving into like fan pressure, which is something that a lot of creators do now. Um, it was kind of fun to see someone be hostile towards their own audience. And I, I, I liked the ride of like trying to piece through it. I like your reading of the behind the scenes narrative, because that's not what I understood to have happened based on what oh. I, my understanding was that they wanted to do what was done in the movie for the last two episodes of the series but that they ran out of funding, which is why those last ah. two episodes are so kind of abstract and at some point seem to be only partially done with lots of still photography and still images and some like animation that like looks sort of incomplete. I thought it worked just as well in the final episodes and there was no need for a movie. I disagree. I think it worked better. I wish it had ended there. <laughs> but if you're going to go back and redo it, I don't know. I like that he just stuck to his guns and delivered the same ending a second time uh, <laughs> instead of like softening it. Well, the episodes kind of say like, oh, a lot of stuff happened that we can't even get into. But here's what happened to Shinji. <laughs> I don't like Shinji at all. Shinji only avoids being the worst character in the series because his father is somehow even worse. Oof. Truly one of the most despicable uh, characters ever committed to video or animation, or, or film. You know, we learned what happened with the other people. Okay, great. But I actually much preferred the psychedelia and, like, the sort of open ending of the show. I think, to me, honestly, the most memorable part of the entire series is when Shinji is kind of existing in this void, and he hears his father's voice, and he's like, okay, you're adrift, and uh, fine, I'll draw a horizon for you, right? And then... The horizon is drawn and now Shinji can tell up from down and he's like, okay, now you're centered, but you also now have your first limitation. And I was like, that's a really cool idea, which is that formlessness in the void represents the ultimate freedom, but also like the ultimate lack of ability to even tell or uh, perceive anything. That perception is in and of itself a limitation of a kind. And then the, the movie just came along and I was like, uh, so bored by it. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I was just so ready for it to be over. And I felt so bad because it means so much to Matt and he loves it so much. But I was just like, afterwards, I was like, I have thoughts. And many of them were not very kind to the film. But the only other not scary thing, or I guess theoretically kind of scary thing that I watched uh, during the past couple of weeks since we talked about Ginger Snaps is I saw Dune. Oh. New Dune? New Dune. I also I also tracked down a copy of Frank Herbert's Dune from uh, the Sci-Fi Sci Channel. Channel cuz I remembered watching that in my youth um, and I I don't remember I didn't remember a single thing about it other than Matt Kieslar. Like, all I could remember was Matt Kieslar in it. And I, I, I've been working on copy to get onto the website for a review of Dune for over a week now. And it's taking me forever because, as per my norm, it's dissolved and devolved into a needlessly personal <laughs> nonfiction 
biographical essay. (laughs) (laughs) As is my want, you know, I do about five or six of those a year, I I think, where it's just like, here's a movie and here's what it means to me. Uh, I I guess you could say most recently, my review of A Glitch in the Matrix was kind of like that. And I'm having sort of the same issue with Dune, which is it's turning into an essay about people who only analyze content and not context, mostly based on young, politically idealistic people with whom I generally agree, but who I guess, (laughs) I hate to say this, but, you know, they haven't read the text. I don't know why they haven't read the text. I'm going to presume it has something to do with attention span, which is fine because I've never read it because I don't necessarily think that I have the attention span for that. But one thing that I do know about Dune is that its surface reading is not necessarily its thesis, right? So the internet is like, oh, wow, these books are like, they're about sexism and racism and misogyny and, you know, etc. And it's like, yeah, you know, oh, the white messiah complex. And even though I have not read Dune, I know that that might be the content, but it's not the context. And the context is that the novel is critical of those things. But there are a lot of people who actually have not bothered to look beyond just like reading a Wikipedia summary. And they're like, wow, this is super fascist. And it's like, no, it's critical of fascism. So of course, that's where I'm at with my writing on Dune, which is that I really liked it. And uh, I think that there's been a huge backlash of people who only know the content and not like how the author addresses the content. But I also think that based upon this film alone, that it's not incorrect to have that reading. I was about to say, like, how worthwhile is that context if you're only going to tell half a story? Yeah. If it just cuts off halfway through and you never get to your point. Yeah, but, you know, there were definitely... I've been in theaters where people who didn't realize that they were in for um, more than one film story realize that, you know, your 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 Joannes and your Cletuses, where you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, of course that's not all there is of it when you're sitting there in 2017. It's like, right, of yeah. course that's not all there is of The Lord of the Rings when you're sitting there in 2001. And it's it's a completely different world now than it was twenty years ago when that happened with the Lord of the Rings, where you could have you could have realistically been a member of the general public and not assumed that there would be more movies. That's not really the case now, I would think. So in this film, it does not yet reach the point where it becomes critical, and I I honestly think that that's a wise idea because you essentially allow your viewer who's not necessarily familiar with the original text to theorize and think about it and think about how cool and great it is that, you know, Paul is the prophesied Messiah who's going to maybe lead the Fremen and blah, 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 and then pull the rug out from under them to be like, oh, actually, (laughs) eugenics is bad in case you uh, forgot that for a moment. Especially because we know that the film will get a sequel. If it were more in danger, then sure. But it's not 1998, where at the end of Lost in Space, you know, William Hurt and Matt LeBlanc are going to jump this like ship (laughs) 
through a wormhole as like a sequel hook and we'll never see them again. It's 2021. The Dune's going to get a sequel. So I, I guess I am not in love with the hypercriticism of the text of the movie or the text of the book without the context of how the book and eventually this film series will uh, re-examine the precepts that we would have of what's actually happening there based on a much more surface reading of the text. You saw it though, right, Brandon? Yeah, I did. And I just had like very incomplete non-thoughts about it because I felt like it was a part of a thing. It's like uh, watching an episode of a TV show and then having like an opinion on the whole season. I, I don't like, I just thought it was very pretty. Costumes were nice. Performances were pretty good. I don't have any like concrete thoughts about it beyond that because it was just like a handsomely staged thing. I, I will say I have a problem a little bit with this type of adaptation where it's literally just like an illustration of the things that happened in the book without any kind of like interpretation or artistic imposition on the work from the director or any reason for it to be made. I guess it looks like a Denis Villeneuve film, but I don't know why he was drawn to the project or like what he was trying to bring out through the text, but also it feels like half a story. So I guess I'll figure that stuff out, you know, in three years. (laughs) Yeah. I have to say I was captivated by it. I was transported by it. I was taken away you know there's been so many marketing campaigns that were like oh you've got to see dune on the biggest possible screen and i'm like "Mm, okay don't rush people who are maybe in an area where they're not really approaching herd immunity or there's not enough vaccinations to be like go out to the theaters again you know flog this dying horse industry back into life you know don't push that on people But I will say, I did see it on a big screen, and I was utterly captivated. I was transported. And I saw it on my couch on HBO Max, so that might be the difference in our our, uh, reactions to it right there. That might be it. It, it, It's it's worth saying that, I guess. But as far as like what I watched that was spooky season as it came to an end, and to clarify, (laughs) Kat and I resumed our X-Files watch on November 1st. (laughs) <laughs> we <Hell yeah. laughs> as soon as spooky season was over we're like all right back to work um and we have started season eight which is the first like molder not completely molder free but molder light season we're about six or seven episodes into season eight and i have to say you know one of my earliest things that i i said when i first started watching the show with cat was that my long time impression of what the show was visually like if you asked me to just like picture the x-files in my mind what i always pictured was just people driving fords at night (laughs) and now that we have entered season eight i am sorry to say the time of the taurus has come to an end the age of the chevy silverado is here (laughs) man that's like when they switched out the coronas in the fast and furious movies like eight or nine movies into it they switched to like Bud Light or something. I was like, no, this is a betrayal. <laughs> Where's your brand loyalty? I watched Life Force, which I'm very excited to talk about when we do our movie of the month roundtable. I am anxiously anticipating that to arrive in my inbox. It really is very much like a classic 50s or 60s like sci-fi thriller from Great Britain because 
like every 10 minutes, there's a whole new set of white men. And you're like, wait, who is the protagonist of this? It's just one right after the other. It's like, which of which of these people is our, our lead? You know, every 10 minutes, a whole new set, a whole new cast of characters appear. All of their names are like alliterative, too. It's like Steve Railsback's character, who, of course, as we all know, appeared in the X-Files as Dwayne Barry. His character is Colonel Carlson, and Peter Firth's character is Colonel Colin Kane. And I'm just like, what is happening? It's just every 10 minutes, brand new characters. Um, looking forward to writing about that one. And then I also finished my viewing of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And? Oh, I loved it. <laughs> Truly a delight. Truly loved it. I didn't like it in my youth. I guess I was too uptight, but I really did enjoy Mistress of the Dark. And Brandon, you said that there's a sequel? There's another film that she self-financed with her husband at the time. She's obviously not married to a man right now. She sure isn't. <laughs> she filmed a uh, sort of like Hammer Horror, Corman Poe parody in a Castle in Romania in the early 2000s called The Virus Haunted Hills. Um, we covered both of those for the podcast recently. I do not think you would enjoy that movie, but Brittany and I had fun with it. It's very um, Mel Brooks, but like late period Mel Brooks. <laughs> like uh, it's just pure shtick the whole time. It's not quite up to the same quality as Mistress of the Dark. Okay. I was very pleased that it had Will from Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. The best one, you mean? It's the, the best, best Nightmare on Elm Street movie. <laughs> I don't agree with that. It's in the top three. Yes, I think that... I think that Nightmare on Elm Street and then Dream Warriors and then New Nightmare form a perfect trilogy. Yeah, I don't really care which one is anyone's favorite out of those three. Yeah, no, you're right. You, you, those are you the love Freddy's right. Back. Oh, the Rachel Talele one? The Yeah, the second one, the the first sequel. Oh, I like that movie. I don't love it. Oh, okay. I thought it was yeah. um, a beloved of yours because I can't stand no. it. I hate it. It's all I didn't right. like it the first time I watched it, and then it's because I was watching it with a bunch of Nightmare on Elm Street movies, like all in a row. Yeah. Yeah. We recently rewatched it on the podcast with that documentary that came out about it, and I found it worked better in isolation. Like, it, it works better, like, it, not thinking of it as an Elm Street movie. Yeah. And just thinking of it as, as this weird 80s thing that happened. Yeah. It, yeah, it's not, it's not one of my favorites, really. It is a perfectly fine movie, but a terrible Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yes. Exactly. Yes. I also actually rewatched The Dream Child because it was on HBO Max. And I feel like that's the one that I've seen the least. Or, because, you know, the original I've seen plenty. Dream Warriors I've seen a ton. New Nightmare I've probably seen the most. And for whatever reason, you know, because of the recent camp reevaluation of Nightmare 2 or, or Freddy's Revenge. I feel like I've seen that one a ton. And 4, you know, as far as like Dream Master goes, that one I feel like was pretty frequently paired with Dream Warriors on TV. And Freddy's Dead, I feel like, comes on cable a lot because it's terrible and therefore like you can license that for 50 bucks, I'm sure. Because I, I feel like that one used to be on TV all the time too. Embarrassingly, that's the one I was saying I have an affection for. <laughs> oh, really? That's the one that Rachel Talele directed. And it probably is because it's the first one I saw because it used to be on TV um, a lot. 
but it's also very silly and I think has like a 90s John Waters comedy tinge to it. It might be more fun than you remember it being. Maybe not. It might, there might be a little bit of an Elvira, Mistress of the Dark thing happening there. Uh, but I just remember it being very goofy and fun. It's got a lot of zany gags. It she really, sure like, does. Goes for it. It sure does. That's what I remember about it. Um, and I've I have seen it uh, quite a bit. But I I think that actually kind of starts in Dream Child. I think that Dream Child was better than I remembered it being. I had not watched that one since I was like a junior in high school and I watched all of them because someone in the dorms had the DVD box set and we watched them all over the course of like a week or two. And there was both like kind of Freddy fatigue going on, which it it kind of continues with some of the cool things that happened in four. Like you remember in four, you know, Alice had that friend who had asthma and then she had her whole thing happen in class where she had an asthma attack while she was you know i also love like the roach motel elements uh you know the one the you know hard-ass girl who was also kind of secretly afraid of bugs having her like bug thing happen in four five has some of that because alice is back so is alice's boyfriend and for once one of the things i did like about it is that for once one of the elm street teens parents actually learned something because <laughs> alice's dad had a drinking problem in the first one and after her brother died or in the fourth one but after her brother died he's like quit drinking and they talk about that and like how they can't really have a party at her house because her dad doesn't like to have liquor around i thought that was interesting and i actually even kind of liked her friends and i liked i thought that all of the dreams that she had were much more effective than I remembered um, when Alice is like dreaming about Amanda Kruger and what happened to her and communicating with her unborn son in her dreams. It was much better than I remembered. So I'll say that. Um, I also finally covered up a, a blind spot or uncovered a blind spot of mine, which we have been talking about, which is that I watched Jennifer's Body classic and i loved it yeah awesome good there were there was an awful lot of um ableist slurring going on more than i would have expected there's an awful lot of use of of words for um people who are neurodivergent that i was shocked were still being used so <laughs> commonly in a movie in 2009 because oh, i feel yeah. like even in the late 90s i didn't even hear that as like a slur on the playground anymore the odds were pretty gross in general yeah they were <laughs> so i'm not surprised to hear that even though i haven't seen the movie in a few years everything else about it i love but i was a little bit shocked by that uh, and you know i understand that diablo cody was an ed is an edgy lady you know and part of the the is how what how many puns she can make out of those words that we don't say but I did fucking love it. Um, I do think that it is of a cloth, you know, of a feather with ginger snaps, as we talked about. I can definitely confirm that I feel that way as well. And it gets a big recommendation for me. It's free on IMDb TV right now. And it's on the Criterion channel, channel which yeah. I feel like just the uh, novelty of watching that on Criterion, I feel like is something that should be indulged. But I have held the floor for a really long time. I'm very sorry. <laughs> Brandon, what have you been watching? I will try to be quick because we still have a lot to get into with the main topic of conversation, but 
I did watch one horror classic for the first time on Halloween. I watched Return of the Living Dead from 1985. Mostly want to mention this for a couple reasons. One, I should have seen it a long time ago. But two, this year I've been having like a Dan O'Bannon year. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, like early this year, we rewatched all of the Alien movies. And I fell in love with the original Alien all over again. And I always just think of Dan O'Bannon as the guy who wrote Alien. That's like... Anytime I see his name come, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the guy who wrote Alien. Like, not something that really, like, his writing isn't really, like, my favorite part of the movie, you know? Like, I like the Giger sex creep alien design. I like the, like, mood of the piece, which I guess that's more in the director's lap than anything. But this year, watching Life Force for the first time, and then the same month watching uh, Return of the Living Dead, which he made the same year. He wrote Life Force. It's got a lot of the same preoccupations with like 50s sci-fi pulp that Alien does, but it's pushed to a 1980s maximalism that I guess being paired with like Toby Hooper will do to you. It just feels like <laughs> Life Force is like directed by the cocaine that they were snorting and not themselves. That is not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Toby Hooper was also hired to direct Return of the Living Dead. Um, was supposed to be like a revamping of the George Romero zombie series. And um, he stepped out for, like, scheduling conflicts. And I guess because Dan O'Bannon and him were already collaborating, O'Bannon stepped up and took over the project. And this guy is an absolute fucking madman. Like, the fact that he's responsible for Life Force and Return of the Living Dead in the same year is absolutely wild to me. Instead of, like, revamping Romero for the 80s, he, like, respectfully didn't want to copy Romero's, like, template. So he just like started over on what zombies are. <laughs> like, yeah. Apparently this is the first time that zombies craved brains instead of just flesh. This is the first time they like ran and spoke and did all these other things, which is not surprising because it's the same energy as life force where like every scene is just a new idea and a new gag. Um, it has a lot of similar visual effects. I didn't really look at the overlap of the, vi- like the practical gore teams, but I assume there's some overlap there. And, you know, it's also a party movie. Like, it's just punks partying in a graveyard during a zombie apocalypse, including Linnea Quigley, who usually gets naked in movies. Like, that's how she got famous as a screen queen in the 80s. But in this one, she does it so aggressively that it's almost a joke. Like, she like she strips and dances on a gravestone early on and then refuses to put her clothes on for the rest of the movie, even when characters tell her that she's making them uncomfortable. Like, yeah. please put your clothes back on. She's like, no. <laughs> I don't know if y'all have an affection for this movie, but I thought it was great. Yeah. I I remember as a kid being much more scared by it. It has a much more like bleak ending even than the original Night of the Living Dead, which is shocking. But the fact that like, you know, the idea that you could become part of the Living Dead and then afterwards like you could be defeated even like burned into ashes and you would still have consciousness is just the most terrifying fucking thing to me the talking is like really upsetting like yeah there are a couple characters who don't even get bitten by zombies to get exposed to this like gas that was like storing the zombies poisoned and their bodies stop functioning and decay while they're fully conscious and just talking and like expressing the excruciating pain of like dying flesh that you're still living like it's still your body yeah oh my god it's it's actually really upsetting you're right yeah uh, but it's also a party <laughs> it's also a party this is a fun one and it throws a lot of ideas out there so, um maybe they've been copied since 
but they feel exciting and excited at the time. Like you could tell they feel like they were like trying stuff. Uh, it's very like fun and playful. Yeah. And I, I am glad that uh, O'Bannon did not want to just copy and remake because I don't know if you've ever seen like the, I guess, 90s remake of Night of the Living Dead with like Tony Todd. I actually like that movie, the Tom Savini one, but only because I thought the performances were good and the practical effects were good. But yeah, it's it's kind of like a spiritually empty exercise yeah compared to this anyway yeah like people like to complain about the shot for shot gus van sant remake of uh psycho right or about the shot for shot (laughs) remake of dune no i'm just kidding um (laughs) but like that movie in particular does just sort of like feel like it's going through the motions yeah it's technically well executed but um doesn't really have a purpose Right. Return of the Living Dead's a lot more excited about what it can do with Romero's toolbox and not just like um, how to recreate Romero, which is definitely a more um, exciting thing to watch. And to drag us out of spooky season, um, I did go to the theater today and start my first prestige picture, like my first like um, Oscar contender (laughs) in the works, which I feel like is what happens. Like the Halloween movies dry up. And then this is like the two months a year that the dinosaurs in the Academy like wake up and actually watch movies from like November to January. Um, (laughs) They come out of their crypts like Rita Repulsa. (laughs) After 10,000 years, I'm free. I watched The French Dispatch, which is the new Wes Anderson movie. I have to say, I went into this movie being like, I know what Wes Anderson does. I know what to expect from this. I know like the middling amount of enjoyment I will get out of it because I've seen it so many times before. And I walked out of that theater so pleased, just like really in love with it. Maybe it's because the Isle of Dogs movie was like not up to his like usual um, standard, or maybe um, it was just the excitement of like seeing a really good movie in a theater, which it's been a minute for me, but this feels like, one of his most substantial works post Tenenbaums. Like it feels like something really special from him. And all I can really say about it on that front is just that it's very funny. Like you'll hear people complain sometimes that, you know, American studio comedies, they can be funny, but they're never interesting to look at. Like they're always very visually drab and uninspired. And here you have a, you know, a tour who's made his late career off of packing as many Hollywood celebrities as he can onto these like meticulously um, decorated sets and these beautiful images. Um, and every time he tells a joke, it lands. Um, and especially in this movie, it's it's an anthology series of vignettes based off this like newspaper, or not newspaper, like a magazine insert structure, um, like a literary magazine. And the story's told in clear, definitive blocks like laid out like a magazine and within each of those blocks, it's just constant jokes, just rapid fire. And I laughed the whole time and left in a great mood. Anytime a Wes Anderson movie comes out, I'm excited for it. I am unapologetically a Wes Anderson fan. So I'm very excited to go see it. Same here. I'm like uncynical about his movies. I, and I'm like a super critical person. And I'm just like, no, you know what? I'm going to watch this new Wes Anderson movie and I'm going to like it because I always do, even when it's not his best. So it's funny whenever people are like complaining about him. I'm like, ha, that's true. And then I'm like, I'm going to go see it. 
There's a high likelihood that I had this exact same enthusiasm walking out of Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom, and I just don't remember because that was so long ago. <laughs> and a lot's happened since then. Daddy? Yes, son? Who is the god of rock and roll? Satan! 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 <laughs> author of all lies. Satan! 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 A couple times over the past year, I want to say, I mentioned a couple movies that were like mixtape films, Mm -hmm. mashup movies. My favorite movie from last year, Ask Anybody, was constructed from golden age pornos um, and constructed a new narrative out of old films. It also came up when we watched The Green Fog on this show, which did the same two movies shot in and around San Francisco. And um, Guy Madden clipped segments of those movies and retold um, Hitchcock's Vertigo with those like scraps from like movies that were already in existence. Boomer was interested in this concept of a mixtape movie, but you said you had never seen one before. So I wanted to pick one to discuss that I thought you would have an interest in thematically. Um, I picked The Great Satan from 2018. And boy, did you succeed. (laughs) (laughs) It's a mixtape film from Everything is Terrible, which is a great like online collective of, I want to call them VHS archivists. I was going to say, it's an archival project gone wrong. (laughs) In the best of ways. Well, usually they're the found footage VHS collective and they'll post like clips on, you know, their social media channels of just like weird esoteric just forgotten bullshit media, you know, local commercials, a lot of like Christian propaganda videotapes, um, a lot of like infomercial kind of stuff. And it's just like, look at this weird found footage that no one's paid attention to in the past 30 years. They also produce these like feature length mixtapes that tell a narrative from those scraps. Uh, one of them, which I very much need to see myself, is called Doggy Woggy's Poochie Woochies, which uh, retells Hodorowski's Holy Mountain with just clips of dogs. <laughs> just uh, clips of cute dogs. I would uh, love to see this as well. So future episodes, I'm Sounds sure. Sounds better than Holy Mountain. <laughs> and The Great Satan does the same thing. Uh, this is from 2018. Um, and it, sell- it tells loosely, I think, from the beginning, the story of Lucifer, the fallen angel, who is cast from heaven. Mm-hmm. And then I think it gets really muddled, but from what I could tell what they were trying to tell in this like narrative was um, showing his like corrupting influence on earth. Once he was like cast down here, like how he tricks children and adults into worshiping him instead of God. There's a lot of like edge Lord humor thrown in there where it's like, I don't know that that clip was thrown in for any reason other than to be, you know, upsetting. <laughs> I I gave out a list of, like, content warnings before y'all watch this, so I guess I should do the same here, which is, like, there's a lot of, like, suicide imagery, a lot of, like, outright pornography, um, and a few instances of blackface, which um, I don't think the movie is playing for laughs, except at the expense of Christian media. 
And I guess that's where I'll kind of leave off just basically telling you what kind of clips are in here. This is pieced together from over 2,000 VHS tapes, and it, it has a lot of recognizable popular media in it. Like yeah. You'll recognize clips from The Devil's Apprentice or End of Days, uh, Child's Play, The Ginger Dead Man. The Dream Child. Oh, yeah. yeah. Also, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Yes. The, uh, evil Uncle shows up in here. And then quite a few times, Society. Society, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. Society appears a lot. And there were, yeah. there were multiple clips from previous movies of the month there was society and i also recognized one of the judith ivy scenes in the from um the shelly long movie that we just watched hello again hello again judith ivy yeah. the sort of witchy sister there's like a, a scene of her from that movie in this as well during the witchcraft segment and a lot of that stuff is like basically just looking for devil imagery in popular media yeah like they'll show clips from legend, but you're not going to see Tom Cruise posing in his like glittery Peter Pan pose. You'll see just uh, Tim Curry in the demon makeup. The next level down, I think from there is the metal exploitation stuff from the eighties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We did a episode of metal exploitation last year and every movie we talked about um, on that episode is in here. Hack a lantern, highway to hell, trick or treat, rock and roll nightmare. And then I think the third layer down below that is the shit that I've never seen before, which is the Christian content. Just like media that is marketed directly to children to basically poison their little brains and get them to join this like Christian death cult um, called evangelicalism. And I guess that's where I think the movie has a point. Like it's doing two things. It's both like an overwhelming flood of this like badass satanic imagery. And it just looks really cool. It's just like this overload of visual information with us. Like just from expensive Hollywood productions to like backyard movies. Like what does a visualization of Satan look like in media? And then the other layer is this like sickening overview of Christian America, just the moral rot of like satanic panic, especially from the eighties until now. So yeah, I, I thought this was a very like interesting movie. It is a lot to handle. It's very dense. What did y'all think of it? You say that it's a lot to handle, and I have I have thoughts that I would like to share, and I would like to let Allie go first because um, I don't know how long I'll need the floor. But <laughs> uh, I, as far as it being dense and a lot to handle, this had to be watched in segments over the course of a couple oh. of nights because I was like, I could have watched this whole thing. But Matt and Kat could not. Matt made it about 15 minutes in during the first time. And he was like, I, I'm sorry, I cannot watch this. It is a constant, constant barrage. But Tubi has it with commercials. So it worked out. It fed I think this brain. is like the best use of Tubi's commercial breaks. Like it actually yeah. gives you a breather. You're like, oh my God, thank God I could like, come you, up for Tubi. air. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Tubi. Pay us. Also, before we move on from that, I want to say that it's amazing that Tubi can platform this. Like, I don't know how you clear the license for this much pre-existing cultural media. I don't I don't yeah. understand how it's legal for Tubi to make ad revenue off of this movie. Um, and I, I want to see more stuff like this get official platforms because, you know, ask anybody in the green fog and um, Dan Deacon's ultimate reality. These are not movies that you can buy on physical media they're like hard to track down sometimes i would think that this would only work because of how short the clips are yeah that's what i would think too the same way that girl walk all day the you know the the girl talk albums they only work because 
he uses like one, two, three seconds less than of like an original piece than would be needed for him to obtain the rights. So like if it's 30 seconds that you can use, you know, without having to obtain the rights, he'll use like 27 seconds. I don't think it's that. It's closer probably to like 10 seconds before you have to. But I assume that that's the only reason this works. Although there are segments that are longer than just like, although that's how most of the film is. It's just snap, 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 snap. The most it seems that they ever show at a time is like 25 to 30 seconds. Yeah, but there's a lot of repeats. Like you'll go back to the same movie a few times. So I don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a lawyer. I'm especially not a copyright lawyer, um, but I'm very interested in the like hurdles they would have to clear to like officially platform this. What if this episode is what makes um, someone notice and they pull it from Tubi? So oh, no. just to be on the safe side, if you're listening, go watch it right now. Hoisted by my own petard. Oh, God. <laughs> Tubi will never pay for us now. I have so many thoughts, but Allie, I would love for you to go first. So my first thought is, wow, this movie is a lot because it just keeps going and coming at you and there's like no escape. And in that way, it is almost hell. (laughs) Like it is (laughs) almost just sensory overload hell of a mixtape movie. But I think I loved it. I really thought that... The themes of like dealing with the absurdity of Christian propaganda media, especially is pertains to like children, is really great. Yeah, it's just there's so much to it, but also how do you talk about something that is made of so many other things? Like, I guess just the fact that they're doing this and they are keeping up doing this, and especially this one in particular seems to have an original sort of story like take on Satan because I do feel like we get a lot of movies about Jesus and Jesus's life but you know we don't get a lot of movies that are yeah Satan's life <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting because like secular film loves Satan like they just love yes. Satan a character and things that makes it funny right or that makes it that much more sacrilegious because you can make fun of Satan without upsetting too many of the wrong people who yeah. have the power to cause trouble for you. But if you start to like, you know, you can't even portray like Christ as like a radical anti-state figure, which he really was in the text yeah. uh, without it upsetting the wrong people. That's And so you don't really see much media made about Jesus as much as you do see media made about Satan because he's, it's like, they're both in the public domain, but it's just about who you're going to piss off. Yeah. Well, Satan's also incredibly sexy and cool. It's true. Um, Well, I want to tell you about a sexy rad dude named Jesus Christ. (laughs) Do his friends call him JC? Yeah, he's in the house. Um, But I'm sorry, please, Ali, go on. So there was all of that, and then there are just parts of this movie that I was like, wait a second, Like, I feel like I recognize this very specific Christian propaganda tape, or I feel like I know that, and it just is like, feels like it's like excavating memories from my childhood, just picking away at the, the crust over it, where I was like, wait a second, <laughs> Like, I thought I dreamt that. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's like certain images in here that it feels like it was aimed specifically at you and not like at a monoculture. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, does anyone else remember Whoopi as the Cheshire cat or? Yeah. Uh, right. Like, yes. Does uh, Randy and Miss Elizabeth's wedding on WWE, like, how does that fit in this? Or like, there's a Any Sprinkle 101 Steps to like Sexual Enlightenment porno DVD that I own. And it, there are extensive clips of that porno DVD in this movie. And I'm like, why is that in here? <laughs> is this just to fuck with me in particular? Or is this like, has some sort of like grander cultural significance that I'm not aware of? Very odd. It, yeah. it feel, it's extra creepy when something hits you like that. When you're like, I thought I was the only person in the world who caught this like public access thing. Or uh, this like straight to VHS story time fairy tale enactment. Right. There were certain things in here that were not unlocked for me. Like, they weren't being excavated because they live on the top of my brain. Like, Salty, the singing psalm book. Like, Yes! That was a, that was one of them that I was like, oh, wait, I didn't make that up. <laughs> so, you know, I was saying that, like, you know, Matt could not sit through this initially. I will say he was a trooper. He finished it with me when I finally finished it. He took some time off. That new Animal Crossing content came out. He was able to do something (laughs) else while I watched it. Probably better for his brain. (laughs) Probably. But he did finish this with me like a trooper because he was shocked. Because while we were watching it, the first 12 minutes, 15 minutes, there's a scene from a Christian video special entitled Turmoil in the Toy Box, which was a book that my grandparents owned, which was just about like how media of the eighties was satanic in order to like lure in children to the occult. And I remember that book specifically because even in my youth, I was very interested in cults, mostly because I was (laughs) living in one, but didn't know it yet. I think, but you know, I've written kind of extensively about rapture media for the site you know it's i've taken a real long break from it because it just got to be kind of too much especially around 2016 2017 didn't really want to talk about the rapture anymore uh i'm eventually going to return to that but that was one of my earliest projects for the site and one that i did like some of the most work on i think the only project that surpassed it is the argento project and so i have so many specific memories and pieces of knowledge about all of the little things that are in here. So after we had to turn it off, now let's also rewind back to mid-September. It's Matt's birthday. His friends have come over to my place um, and one of them mentions Bible Man. And I open my VHS cabinet and I'm like, oh, you mean like this? And I show them the extensive VHS collection of Christian propaganda that I own. (laughs) I could have made this. So when you're saying, does it feel like it's aimed at you? The answer is very much yes. Because there but for the the grace of God, (laughs) go I. I want to say, when I told you about the mixtape movies like as a concept, I feel like you even said, like, why am I not doing that as a living? Like, yeah. why am I not making why that Why aren't content? you doing this? I don't know. It's time. It's time. <laughs> my time it's has time. come. I found my calling. <laughs> yep. So, you know, 
he was aware that I have this extensive Christian propaganda VHS collection that was because I had shown it to him. We've talked about it. I've written about it for the site. I've expressed my interest in like, you know, rapture eschatology and its effect on like American governments and American governance, excuse me, you know, the rise of the right wing in the eighties through like the sort of mega churches and televangelism that created the like pocket in which Hal Lindsey's version of the apocalypse and his most recent numerological heretical reading of revelation revealed brand new pieces of information for the impending 1980s rapture. And it's especially frustrating because when it comes to something like turmoil in the toy box, the things that they are attacking are actually they are correct. And that like the cartoons of the eighties that were just toy commercials were propagandistic, but it wasn't that they were instilling an interest in the occult in children. You know, it's also that their buddy Reagan had changed the laws regarding children's programming and allowed that to come into existence because that was the the sort of reversal of legislation regarding how much programming for children could be considered advertising or could advertise products and not be educational. So it's a very frustrating thing to talk about as part of the American political discourse, you know, this like partnership between Reagan and the right-wing televangelism and you know, we talk about it with Marjo, we've talked about it a lot. Or at least I have tried to get us to talk about it a lot. And so this led to a very long conversation where I was like, okay, we don't have to watch this, but now let's exchange stories about our own early life encounters with the church. And there are certain things that just seem so normal to me, even though uh, they're clearly not just because that's the environment that I grew up in. And it's always great to talk about that with people who slightly aligned or didn't at all. And in fact, the party that I went to on the Saturday before Halloween, where I went as the hip youth pastor, the person whose home that was at was a child in a salty release, salty, the singing Psalm book. What? Release. Like, did you get an uh... autograph? <laughs> We've been friends for a long time. I was in his wedding. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm intimately familiar with all of this, like intimately you know, there was a moment where uh, we paused because Matt wanted to tell me something, you know, that the the movie, you know, had made him think of. And you cannot, like, you have to pause this or else you're just going to completely lose what you could, is uh, theoretically yes. the plot. And I recognized explicitly that one of the videos being used was from the stage production Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, which it comes up sort of later after that 20 minutes that we had watched together. And I had told him after we stopped watching it about my own encounter with this play because the church that we went to, it was, you know, a sort of a seedling mega church. It's more of a mega church now as you know, we, if, if you're a listener in Louisiana, <laughs> you're probably familiar with them. And, you know, I went to the school that was part of the church and we watched these videos that comprised this movie just constantly you know, everything was anti-secular music, anti-secular film, you know, Christian propaganda just all the time. And there was a time where what they would do is they would separate the kids on Sundays into children's church and they would have family service in the main auditorium. 
And because my grandfather was with us, we went to the family service that day and I was seven years old and I saw Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, which like traumatized me. And when clips from that production started showing up after the midpoint of this movie, I turned to Matt and I said, I wonder if they're going to include the line that traumatized me as a child. My salvation comes in little white packages and not even like 45 seconds later, that clip. (laughs) He was stunned that like how much of this I knew all the little songs of the chants about, you know, our God is marching on and I'm in the Lord's army. Oh my God. The Lord's army like horrified me. I'm just going to say, I've never heard that one and having it like in this context, I was like, holy shit like that is horrifying (laughs) i just remember the uh prayer army stuff from like jesus camp yeah i don't know why i mean i grew up in the middle of nowhere in tennessee like when i would have been exposed to this stuff and that somehow was that didn't make it into circulation up there you know (laughs) young louisiana got crazy too fast (laughs) yeah the the song about you know i may never march in the infantry shoot the artillery or ride in the cavalry etc but i'm in the lord's army i remember singing that in preschool and that wasn't even like a christian preschool that was just oh my god a preschool that i went to like a like a pre-k daycare center that's the stuff that makes this movie just like stomach turning to me yeah like it's like oh this is fun badass satan stuff and then you get into some of these like sing-songy nursery rhymes and like the lessons that they're like breaking down for children you're like this country's fucking broken yeah this is like the core of what is wrong with like the culture i have to um interact with on a daily basis with like several layers of like protective you know this isn't for everyone's eyes it's only for people who are like in the know like removed like i feel like i shouldn't be watching this like it's made for um, people who are like uh just living on a different planet than i am i don't know i'm from that planet I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm glad you left. <laughs> Crash landed here. I'm from that planet adjacent. I'm like from the yeah. moon of that planet. <laughs> from the moon of that planet. <laughs> yeah. I could, I mean, the Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames, the iconography of like the silver and gold foil covered stairs going upstage is seared into my brain. I was so scared by that line in that stage production when I was seven years old that I actually ran out of the like auditorium and vomited. Oh God. Like oh. ran to the bathroom and threw up. It was so scary. Cause I don't think I had ever like experienced like reverb before. Oh, no. <laughs> like, you know, cause it's like the, the voice is so big and echoey and it fills up the whole space. And like the the sound system in that church was, you know, state of the art. But yeah, it just completely terrified me as a child. And it, I don't know, does anything about what I'm saying, is it, <laughs> are things starting to make sense? Are there things yeah. that you know about me that you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I was like looking around at like mixtape movies to watch, like, this seemed like the obvious one. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, we could have tracked down a copy of Doggy Walkie's Poochie Woochies, but I just felt like this probably would hit closer to home. Um, Boy, does it. I might have, should have warned you about how close it might have hit. I don't know how much of a preamble I gave you, but. You know, 
there's a time when this would have been a harder movie to get through, but like I've kind of worked through a lot of that (laughs) and especially like actually writing for the site and writing about like the rapture movies has been part of that therapy of like exposure or re-exposure to just how like not just bad and not just like cruel and not just manipulative it is but also just like how heretical how like it doesn't actually align with anything that's in the text and the thing about it is that when you're living in that and that's not just the church that you go to but the school that you go to and when you go to the school you also go to the church in the school once a week on thursdays and it's just like being told over and over again that textually this is God's word. God says this specifically about you, specifically about your desires. That specificity that you're talking about, I felt that. But when this is the media that is like supposed to be instructional to you, it's something that gets inside your brain. And I have worked through a whole lot of that already. So I appreciate your... um like. <laughs> Your apology, but it is unnecessary. I'm ready to just mock the shit out of this. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to ask uh, specific images um, that stuck with me. Uh, The duck that's sitting on a wall and singing in that Donald Duck voice. I want to be a duck for Jesus. I love being a duck for Jesus. That one is unfamiliar to me. I want to know. (laughs) That one I don't know. It's, it's, It's kind of funny because there's so much of this that is so specific and that I remember so specifically Bible man, salty, the singing Psalm book, even church mouse, church mouse. Yes. Like the, which they use very few. That clips was one from. of the ones that I was like, uh, I thought I had made this up. Yeah. That <laughs> it, it's weird because I, uh, there's something about VHS Christian propaganda that is in and of itself kind of nightmarish and dreamlike. Because it's made, so much of it is just like shot on video. And there's something about being shot on video that gives everything about it the aesthetic of a bad dream. And Church Mouse in particular is one that I must have seen like just once. Like maybe I went with my grandparents to church one weekend instead of the church that I normally went to with my parents. And they showed that video in children's church. And I, you know, wasn't one that my parents' church owned, but was one that I saw just once, that church mouse. I was like, oh my God. It's like an image that I've seen in my nightmares that like most of these were familiar, but that I was like, oh, I had the experience that you were talking about where like, I thought I made that up. I love those moments though, where you think that you've made something like really weird, vaguely like horrifying up and then it comes back and you're like, wait, (laughs) My brain isn't crazy. This is real somehow. So I appreciated that from those movies because for some reason, I love that. I love it being confirmed that actually the world is just messed up and it's not my brain all the time. <laughs> that Gerbert puppet. <laughs> that I thought. Oh, yeah, the Gerbert puppet. You know, there was so much Gerbert. There was even like some um, McGee and me, which McGee and me, I think, um, is fine. Uh, I, I think that McGee and Me is like the, one of the least propagandistic of the ones that I was exposed to as a child. That one was kind of fun. It had like a Lizzie McGuire element where the kid drew his imaginary friend Mac. Gerbert was like kind of before 
my time, but was re-airing on like the Christian channels that my dad's parents got. Like when I tell you, I would go, you know, my, my mom's parents, my, my mom's mother was a big reader. There were always books at her house. And there were times that I was exposed to books via my maternal grandmother that I probably shouldn't have been. But, you know, she would like let me read like Jeffrey Deaver novels when I was probably too young. I was definitely way too young to read Gerald's Game when I read it. But she didn't really like so much of the content that I ingested as a child was so policed and policed so thoroughly and so much was forbidden. And, you know, there was so much attempted emphasis on the moral alternative, which was just Christian propaganda versions of things. Because like my, my aunt who the, that household was more economically prosperous than ours, I'll just say. So they also just had constant exposure to these Christian videotapes that then filter down to me. So it's interesting how much of that there is and how much of it just lives in the back of your brain. I guess I want to ask you as someone just like moving beyond a little bit, like what makes up this movie, but as someone who would have been taught what the devil is, how he got here and how he gets to you, can you construct a clear logical narrative flow to this? Cause like it gets really muddled for me after the first 15 minutes, which I feel like is the fall of Lucifer from heaven to earth. And then I feel like the movie's trying to communicate these like different influences and tactics that Satan has now that he's on earth. But I couldn't really make any more clearer of a narrative out of that in my head beyond just like how he corrupts and how he gets in your life. Yeah, that was the clearest narrative I could build too. So so it is constructed both out of like these sort of fictive Christian videos, right? The ones that are about children's characters or children's sing-alongs, but also a lot of it is through recorded sermons, which we owned many of those as well, or at least members of the family did. They would get circulated around where I was, you know, there were sermons that were in this that I recognized specifically as ones that we had previously watched, like as a family. You know, there's clips from Carmen, who was, I guess, like a like a hip hop music alternative. <laughs> Our church had a VHS copy of many of his music videos. And there are a couple of them that appear in this. There's, um, you know, it's who's in the house. JC. Truly, truly embarrassing. Virginity <laughs> is cool. cool. Virginity <laughs> is cool. Um, yeah, I think the one it. that, that <laughs> is most recognizable in this mixtape is... Uh, you know, they do the kicking it for Christ lyric. Do we recall this? <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so, yeah. That oh, was now I'm getting a flashback to the uh, Christian ska song that interrupts the uh, oh. flow of things. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. So, I guess what's interesting is that evangelical Christianity, you know, is talking about its sort of heretical elements, the elements that are verbally said to be literal you know when you hear them in these sermons like this is a literal reading of what this verse says this is literally what god's voice says to us through the scripture that what you don't realize until much later hopefully and for many people unfortunately not at all is how much interpretation is going down 
when you, Brandon, talk about how this has like ruined our country, one of the things that we talk about whenever we talk about people's lack of just like news media literacy is a lack of media literacy. And it's because for so many of them, they're taught that a text can only mean one thing and that it must be literal that that's their understanding of like sort of the Ur text, which is the scripture, which is the Bible, you know, that that has ultimate authority and it's all literal, even though what they're actually being taught is always an interpretation. And so, you know, uh, what's happening here is that some of these heretical evangelical beliefs are becoming part of the narrative that you're asking about, because they're things that you as a person who didn't necessarily grow up within that sphere don't recognize as being part of those doctrines. So it's weird that through the 80s and 90s, and this is part of like millennialist dispensationalist eschatology, which is what most of these evangelicals would have believed, which is basically in a rapture and in an antichrist, is that Satan is not just, you know, the result of a, a mistranslation in some places of a word that means accuser. And then those words being sort of taken together in the King James and treated as if they refer to one entity. And he's also not just a rebellious angel who has already lost the war and is just trying to do as much collateral damage as possible, but almost theorizing Satan, Lucifer, not as a fallen angel, but as a kind of anti-God, where if he gets too much power, he might be able to take control. And so... Those ideas, which are not textual, like I was never taught from a pulpit, you know, Satan could overcome God if too many people worship him. It's almost implied in the way that they talk about how Lucifer is the quote unquote God of this world. He, you know, he is the principality over this darkness that we're living in because we're separated by our sin. And you see it in the way that these pieces of media are created where Satan is presented in these not as uh, something to be dismissed through faith, but as something almost to be feared and to, to turn away from as if worshiping him might make him too powerful. So basically in my eye, I was seeing like Lucifer's story as like a fallen angel stopping once he gets to earth. And you're saying the battle never stops. Like he's like continuing his war against God. Right. Through those corrupting influences. He's just gathering enough strength to like fight back one more time. Yeah. Because the, the eschatology of millennialist dispensationalism is that at some point there will be a millennia of earthly rule by Christ. And depending on whether you're premillennialist or post dispensationalist or pre dispensationalist, I might have gotten my words mixed up there a little bit, but whether that's going to come after like an earthly fight between the Antichrist and Satan's forces versus the returning, you know, Prince of Peace, it gets a little, it's a little iffy about who and which sect believes what and at what time. Like even the company that was making the sort of apocalypse series of rapture films, they went on to make the Left Behind films and there are some like explicit differences between what those two like actual belief systems are about what happens on the day of and after the rapture and, and you know how it'll all shake out. But everything is building to this, you know, supposedly everything is building to this 
clash between Christ and the Antichrist slash Satan's forces on Earth. You know, I did see a couple Left Behind movies, and I did recognize some aspects of that in here, which is mostly like Satan having a, a son on Earth who will like rise to power through like populist politics. Yeah, that's like the one late in the game narrative I started picking up on. Yeah, because the flow of things that is narratively where it would be is at the end because that's before the final triumph of of the church. Well, I guess the question then is like if that is the story they're trying to tell, like the just narrative flow of it from beginning to end, how well do you think they did it? Or is there anything like how effective is yeah. this as like a piece of storytelling versus just an archive of like all these like random pop culture ephemera? <sighs> That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched this movie three times yeah. myself and I don't have a good answer for that question myself. For me, I think of this movie more as like like a mixtape, like not like you were saying, like it's I don't think of it as a movie so much as like more of a a mixtape that moves through parts of a thesis. It moves through moods more than it moves through narrative. So I don't think that it effectively really tells a story about the life and death of of the great Satan. But I do think that it successfully moves through different mood pieces about different segments of that narrative. Yeah, I guess like for me, it was like once Satan is here, it was more just like hitting like bullet points of like where you can find him and how he finds you, I guess. Uh, Basically, drugs and rock and roll are two pretty big ones. Sex, you know, all the good stuff. All the good stuff in life. You know, instead of a narrative through line it kind of just felt like someone was illustrating like Fumer was saying there's a lot of like tapes of sermons here it felt like someone was illustrating a sermon satirically more than a narrative through line to me i like that too just it felt like somebody was like oh yeah listen to this sermon and just let's edit together a bunch of images to mock what they're talking about that's kind of how i ended up having to interpret it rather than the life of Satan because I was like, all right, they lost me. I don't know if there was like a larger biographical narrative thread than he fell to earth. <laughs> Here he is. It really also just like, it really speaks so, it speaks so many volumes about the creators, like the people who made these things. You know? yes. And specifically like, what they expected their legacy to be, that they expected Uh this to be their legacy. And how much of it did they actually believe, right? Because we all know that the satanic panic of the 80s was just complete and utter bullshit. It was mostly just nonsense. Obviously, there were a couple of recorded instances of actual abuse, but none of it to the level that we were taught to be afraid of. Otherwise, you would see a very different world that we'd be living in right now if that had been, the, you know, real. If what, you know, our parents warned us about what we were supposed to be so worried about was real, things would be very different now. Talking to these people, like, in the limited capacity I have, sometimes it just sounds like they think everything, everything is terrible. But yeah, it sometimes <laughs> it just sounds like they do think a lot of the worst has happened. And it's so interesting to me that you know instead of being like oh yeah well it's not as bad as we said it's more of like a 
oh, but don't you see the signs and the devil are all around you. It's not even like a doubling down more than just like totally evading the con- the uh, evidence to the contrary. Yes. So I guess the thing for me is before my grandmother was uh, put into care, like long-term care, anytime that I would go and visit her where she lived alone and she had one of her like church friends or her neighbors visit, you know, it would be like, oh, how's grandson so-and-so? Johnny Doe, whatever, you know, oh, how's little Johnny? And because we're talking about rural America, we're talking about, you know, places without access to proper health care, places without access to proper mental, you know, health care, places without access to proper education, if we're being completely honest with ourselves. Most of the time, the answer had something to do with drugs. It had something to do yeah. with methamphetamines. It had something to do with jail. Yep. Had something to do with the actual struggle of poverty, like the effect of poverty on people. But there was never a single one of those conversations where the thing that was blamed was not Obama or the lack of prayer in public schools. It was always the fault of some liberal or leftist philosophy or belief. Or a personal moral, yeah, like a failing, like on like, your oh, own part. Yeah, go to church and pray more. And that's the part that like really hurts my like stomach. Watching this stuff is just how hateful it is against other people. Yeah, and like praising you know God and all things, but not really uplifting your community in any way or like reaching a hand out. It's basically just making children feel bad about their own weaknesses. Yeah. And like, yes. <laughs> yep. just really creating like a self-defeating, um, self-hating personality trait in like all children that it touches. And that's the one thing, like, I, I didn't have this kind of Christian propaganda in my life as a kid, but, you know, I was raised Catholic and I very much recognize that like self-hatred and guilt and like um, just really beating yourself up over like personal moral failures or just, you know, everyday mess ups because nobody <laughs> it's not actually a moral failure. It's just how it's like presented. Uh, like that stuff like really hits home and to see it like so concrete and like blatant instead of the um, Catholic version, which is very like subtle and passive aggressive Um, (laughs) to see it so clearly stated and concisely like illustrated, like it makes me angry and it makes me like sick to my stomach in a very like quick way. (laughs) Like it's the kind of stuff I dwell on in my like idle time already, but like seeing it so blatant and on the screen illustrated here is like i don't know i find this movie very fun to watch because of all the satanic imagery and all the like jokes but also infuriating well it's almost cathartic because it's these people just lampooning this stuff like yeah non-stop because it's like especially i imagine if you're somebody who has your hands on so much of this media like you've been affected by it so it's almost taking control of that narrative in a way of being like this is absolutely ridiculous. Like, people have put their efforts towards making this stuff that is, at best, ridiculous and just bad art, and at worst, like, truly harmful. So, yeah, I I think it's interesting in that way. Like, it is very, like I said, it is so much all the time, all at once. But, yeah, I don't think you get away with having this much material and not already having it had its effects on you so you might as well um just praise satan right (laughs) (laughs) it's shocking to me i guess 
that other people who grew up in this aren't more willing or interested in or like for the sake of their own sanity like demanding the need to reject this ideology because once you grow up in it i mean you learn to recognize the signs of what a cult is once you've escaped it right and i guess that like my peers who are still part of this world you know these people who never escaped i don't understand it because they're still believing the lies about who is harming them that they believed when we were children even though it's plain as day that the harm that was done to us was not done by Satanists or the media or, you know, the lack of prayer in public schools or Obama, the way that like we were taught to think was happening. It wasn't, or you know, not Obama when I was a child, but Clinton when I was a child that, you know, these same power structures that inscribed and delineated this very restrictive system through fear mongering and outright falsehoods that they're still doing the exact same thing, but with new boogeymen now that they're so blind to it is a shock to me. Like I, it's something that I really have a hard time getting my head around. Did y'all watch that documentary hail Satan from a couple of years ago? I didn't. It, it's I a did um, propaganda piece for the church of Satan. It's basically just like a commercial for getting involved with the Church of Satan. <laughs> um, and it's very convincing propaganda because it's like, it literally is only in existence to oppose this ideology. Right. And like the whole Church of Satan thing is, it's two things. It's like living for its own pleasure and like enjoying yourself <laughs> and like, um you know, self-indulgence while you're alive because, you know, if we're all going to die. You might as well have fun while you're here but also like mutual good and like communal uplifting like actually doing things for other people in your like local community um and making sure that they can indulge and enjoy themselves while they're alive right and what's really funny is how often in that documentary that very practical tactile good is opposed so fiercely by the christian enemies of the church of satan (laughs) because um that ideology is not about enjoying your time here while you're alive. It's about preparing for the next thing that's to come, supposedly. So, I don't know. I think that's a very interesting counteractive piece to this, because it's also propaganda, but um, it's for the other side of the debate. <laughs> it, it does like a very like good job of making you want to join your local chapter of the Church of Satan. <laughs> Which I almost did after watching it. Wow. Alright, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because, you know, I used to share my love of Christian propaganda because, again, I grew up in it, so it's very familiar to me, but also, like, it kind of allows me to do, like, exposure therapy a little bit. And I would, you know, share these things with um my roommate and at one point my roommate's parents were visiting and we watched a rapture movie and they were very concerned because they were like <laughs> they really they were very concerned that i might have been trying to like evangelize <laughs> this belief system to their son and oh you know uh yeah i, I also got concerned because after that he did get really into watching the history channel <laughs> 
Bible series for a minute. And I was like, I really don't want your parents. I don't want your mom to think that I turned you into a Christian. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with being a person of faith, but that I converted you to this very specific bad Christianity. I don't want her (laughs) to think that. Well, anytime that we, I do run across another Christian propaganda piece that I think is worthy of discussion or just something I want to see personally, I will bring it back up for the show. Um, I'm glad we finally got into this. It's been, I want to say, over a year now that we've been doing these Lanyap episodes, and we've yet to do outright Christian propaganda like this, tackling this head on, and it felt inevitable. Hopefully it wasn't too much of a headache, because the movie is very overwhelming. But it's only like 70 minutes. It's It's so short. It's on Tubi with commercials. Like, okay, and I'm a person who can, like, be very sensory overwhelmed and... With commercials, it's very manageable. This was much easier to pay attention to than End of Evangelion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's hard to ignore it. And there's a novelty in seeing some like hardcore pornography mixed in so, there on yes. TV as well. It's good to know that you can find some erect cocks on that platform, <laughs> which seems to have everything. <laughs> can I yes. take my big dick with me to heaven? <laughs> yes, that was like the best. Well, next week on the show, we are going to talk about more uh, horror-adjacent material because we're still winding down from Halloween on the show. Apparently, Brittany and I will be joined by the podcasting crew from We Love to Watch, who we usually do a crossover episode with every year. Um, And we're going to watch all three of the Willard movies. Oh, Uh, wow. The original Willard, its sequel, Ben, and then its remake from 2003. We'll talk to y'all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.